You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs. I'm Patrick Smith. You can get the full range of Irish Times podcasts by subscribing in iTunes and Stitcher. Today, a bonus broadcast. Reflections on the state of British politics post-Brexit, on Englishness, immigration and the state of the Union. By the commentator and columnist for the Sunday Times and latterly the Telegraph, who is a former Tory and Thatcher aide, Sir Ferdinand Mount. He's just published a book of his essays on English public figures in the last 30 years, English Voices, Lives, Landscapes, Laments. And he spoke to Irish Times news editor and former London correspondent Mark Hennessy. Welcome, Ferdinand, and uh, thank you for joining us. Your latest work is an examination of the lives and careers of dozens of English notables, from Kingsley Amos to Harold Macmillan and Margaret Thatcher, and it's filled with anecdote and and insight. But I wonder if we could perhaps use it as a launchpad for a discussion on the nature of Englishness in a post-Brexit vote world, and what is it about the English uh, that the English must better understand about themselves uh, following everything that's happened in recent mont- months? And what is it that the rest of the world must better understand uh, about the United Kingdom uh, in the coming uh, period? If you look at uh, where we stand now, three months on or so from uh, the vote, there's very little sign of buyer's remorse. So how would you analyse the, the state of uh, English public opinion as distinct perhaps from, from UK-wide public opinion? Well, um, I think if we uh, start, we, in a way, I think we have to start at the beginning. And what we have to recognize, and at least certainly I recognized as I went along putting this book together, is the extreme um, oldness of Englishness, if you like, that um, even those historians like Geoffrey Elton, who thought the Tudors were the cat's whiskers, they had to admit that on the eve of 1066, there already existed an English kingdom peopled by an English nation, organized with a central um, power. And th- this was something much earlier than anything that happened in France or Germany. And so it goes back a long way, is the first thing to say. And the second thing is that we were always mongrels. Uh, and quite early on, we became quite proud of being mongrels. So the we never had any uh, real idea of a racial purity. I mean, you only have to look at an English crowd. It's filled with uh, dark, blonde, ginger, snub-nosed, beaky-nosed, tall, short, fat. Um, we're a very, very diverse nation, and we always have been. Um, and, but the interesting thing is that we've usually, most of the time, been quite pleased with that. Uh, Daniel Defoe wrote a famous satire, The True Born Englishman, which was a terrific bestseller. And part of it is mocking the English for objecting to foreign foreigners and foreign-born rulers. And he says, uh, you know, you're basically you're all a bunch of immigrants, um, Romans, Danes, Picts, Scots, Irishmen, and finishing up with the Norman heavies. And he says, these are the dregs of armies, they of all mankind. From this amphibious, ill-born mob began that vain, ill-natured thing, an Englishman. So that's where we start from, that we are, we are, we're mongrels, and, but most of the time we've been open to immigration from all quarters. But every now and then, you know, we lose our cool. It, um, it all seems too much. We are, uh, uh, we are swamped 
to use a word, or feel we're being swamped, to use a word that uh, Margaret Thatcher got ticked off for using. And I think there's a lot of that in the Brexit vote. But it's this, both the openness and the revolt against openness go back a hell of a long way. But the, in, the ingredients that led to the Brexit vote should therefore be no surprise to an outside audience, perhaps. No, I think it shouldn't be. I mean, there are, of course, all sorts of other reasons which were given, like um, it, that it was a revolt against the elites. Well, some of the elitist people I know uh, voted leave. Um, equally, it said it's a vote um, of the backwoodsman against the metropolis. Well, um, look at uh, Northern Ireland and Scotland uh, uh, voting solidly remain. Um, and it's not even a vote, I would say, against the interferences of the EU in our daily lives. Um, I mean, the interesting thing is that the, um, some of the parts of England which have benefited most from EU assistance, like Cornwall or Sunderland, where the great Japanese car factories are, um, and there's a huge amount of EU money has gone into that, um, and the car factories are there very largely because we're in the EU, they voted heavily for leave. So all these other reasons, they may play some part, but I think, you know, basically it's a feeling that um, the pace of immigration had, had become too, too fierce. Um, and, and also another thing which I think perhaps people, even in Ireland, may not be fully... Um, aware of is that this immigration has been different from uh, previous waves of immigration since World War II, in which it was primarily to the big cities um, or the big industrial areas. But this, the, uh, the EU migration, from, um, particularly from Poland and Eastern Europe, um, has reached all corners of, uh, of the UK in a quite remarkable way. I mean, for example, the uh, South Pembrokeshire, you couldn't get uh, further away from the metropolis without falling into the Irish Sea, where we spend a lot of time. All the farm workers, well, pretty well all the farm workers, are, are from Eastern Europe. Um, so you, it has been a huge and, and dramatic change, and, um, and I, I, I would put that as the number one reason. But so often when it comes to immigration into the United Kingdom and the complaints that you hear in English uh, towns and cities, particularly in the East Midlands and East Anglia, uh, so often it's about the failure of the British state to rule itself, to govern low pay rules, to maintain uh, proper oversight of employment conditions, to uh, ensuring that there isn't overcrowding in houses by immigrants. Uh, they complain about the immigrants, but what they're actually their their complaints would be better directed towards uh, their own local authorities and central government for the failures of of the state to rule itself properly. I couldn't agree more. Uh, I think these uh, um, all the things you mentioned are terrifically, cl- very clearly uh, failures of the British state. The um, the very uh, slow way in which. Um, the state has moved to remedy low pay. The failure, uh, the failure to loosen up the planning rules and, and build more houses. All the and, and indeed the, the failure to have a 
you know, a reasonable and fair system of immigration control, which, um, you know, suits both industry and local life. All these, you know, they are the failures of successive governments. Um, so, you know, there's... Um, we've, uh, and um, I think there's also, you know, if you look at the uh, gradual dec- decrease in turnouts at, um, at general elections, there's a feeling that governments have become, British governments anyway, have become rather impotent to deal with um, the problems of the day, compared with which there is a pretty um, high turnout at uh, uh, the EU referendum um, because of people giving people a chance to let off steam. Months on, we still don't know what it is that the British government actually wants in the negotiations yet to start. They haven't called uh, Article 50. They've given no clear indication of where they stand on the whole issue of uh, the single market and what they're prepared to concede for it. How do you think uh, Theresa May is going to maintain discipline within uh, the Conservatives? Uh, she can only maintain discipline to a degree by remaining vague about what, what she actually wants. Well, um, the one thing, I mean, I was startled and uh, depressed by the result, but I couldn't say that it was completely unexpected. What The one thing I absolutely had failed to take in um, was that the British government would not trigger Article 50 um, straight away. Uh, David Cameron had pretty much said that he would, but very wisely they haven't. So... We've had this long period, which has been described as the the phony war, which is obviously going to go on for several months yet, in which um, we scratch our heads and um, think what it is that we want, um, and a rather different thing, what it is that we can get. Um, And, you know, everyone, all the Remainers said, quite rightly, that the Leavers um, had not any clue as to an agreed position um, uh, about the relative um, trade-off between free movement uh, and um, uh, and free access to the European market, and we still don't. Um, so it's going to be a very long, drawn-out process, and um, you know we're basking uh, in, uh, in 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 the sunshine of the relief that we've woken up and nothing has actually changed yet, but. Um, further down the line, it's going to get tougher, and um, I think Theresa May has got a, um, a huge advantage, which is precisely this, that the, the levers don't know, are not agreed as to what exactly they want, and so that any deal that she comes up with will be accepted by the overwhelming bulk, bulk of the parliamentary party. Um, there will be uh, 30 or 40 uh, um, hardline uh, uh, ultras who who will reject pretty much anything, but I I think the parliamentary um, I think the parliamentary argument will be won by the government. I mean, a parliamentary support for uh, a Brexit minor uh, deal is one thing, but you know, at the end of the day, uh, politicians are going to have to bear in mind a wider British public opinion, and wider British public opinion is far more uh, anti-EU than they are. 
So how will they square, how do you think they might be able to square that circle down the road when whatever deal they come forward with is by the very nature of the beast going to be f- filled with complications and qualifications? It's not going to be, it's, it's never going to end up looking as a simple clean cut in the way that it looked on the 23rd of June. Well, that, yeah, but that's true. But I think at the same time, you, it's perfectly possible to um, sell it quite truthfully and effectively by saying, look, the 1972 Act has been repealed. The European Court of Justice no longer has authority uh, in, the, in this realm, although actually we shall have to devise a, a fresh authority to um, overarch whatever deal we get. But, but that will be gone. Um, and um, EU regulations will be um, by grace of the British Parliament and not um, by uh, grace of the European Court. So, I mean, I think you can say, look, these are the things that matter. Yes, of course, the, you know, the deal is, is far from perfect, but we have done the best we can to secure your jobs, your futures, um, and, um, you know, good relations with, with the continent of which we uh, are, in fact, part. So I don't think it's, I don't think it's going to be I don't think actually selling it to the British public is going to be as difficult as all that. It's get, it's getting the deal in the first place. Mm. And I mean, putting aside uh, the UK's relationship with the European Union, uh, w- uh, the Union of the United Kingdom, what will be the implications for that uh, in the next five years? You know, do you think the Scots will go to the point of, of having a second referendum, or is much of the conversation up there at the moment bluster? I. Um I mean, I, I'm inclining to think that it's, um, it's not so much bluster, is that it is a, it is a logical consequence of, from the SNP's point of view, of the Brexit vote, that they should uh, renew uh, their efforts to become an independent nation within the EU. But this has coincided with such a shattering fall in the oil price, and such a growing realisation amongst the Scottish public generally that even without that fall in the oil price, Scotland is, um, the finances of Scotland are in in very poor shape indeed and um, their new taxation powers, which they're about to enjoy, um, will uh, inevitably mean that the Scottish government will be find is already indeed started finding ways of putting taxes up, so that's not going to be very popular. Um, and if you go back to the Scottish referendum, that was one of the strongest under, underpinnings of Alex Salmond's um, case. Uh, you know, again and again, he said Scotland is a rich country, um, and um, and we can afford to go it alone. Well. Um, now, a good number of Scots are thinking, yeah, we're not as rich as all that. And in any case, part of that wealth may um, have come from being part of a common market uh, with our uh, unlovely neighbor to the south. So um, I think uh, that will... Um, I, I didn't think so before the vote, but I increasingly think that... Um, the SNP will be going through the motions of um, 
calling for a referendum rather than uh, a fresh referendum rather than seriously um, you know doing what they need to put it in place and I mean, looking at it from Dublin, one of the fears that uh, people here always have is that uh, Britain rarely, uh, the UK rarely spends enough time thinking about the Anglo-Irish relationship. And over 40 years, things improved under the tent of uh, the European Union and people getting to know each other on the margins of Brussels talks and all of that kind of thing. And now that uh, the UK will in a few years not be at those meetings, that over a period of years thereafter, what we're going to see is a drift again in the relations between the two countries. Do you have any concerns uh, on, on, or any thoughts uh, on that issue of, of Anglo-Irish relations? Yes, I do, and I, I feel that very strongly, being Anglo-Irish myself. My mother came from Westmeath. Um, the, um, I, but I'm more optimistic about that than about some other things, because I think that the Anglo-Irish relationship has now got so entrenched, it took 40 years of sheer bloody agony to draw the attention of the British nation to, to the problem in any serious sense. And that sequence of um, uh, agreements, has, has I, you know, I mean, I, I, <laughs> the thing I always liked was um, um, Seamus Mallon saying that... Um, um, was it Hillsborough or, or the Friday Agreement? Sunningdale. Uh, it's uh, Sunningdale for mm. slow learners. Mm. Uh, I mean, the very that it's been a very long process, and I don't think that can be uh, an, uh, unwound. And I think the um, the first sort of anxiety of any authorities in Belfast will be to maintain uh, what has been won with at such high cost uh, uh, over the, those decades. Um, but I mean, I you know, I think everyone's right to be worried about it. But um, I, you know, on the whole, I'm more optimistic about that. Just a final point. In in your book, you give a number of portraits of British prime ministers Heath and Macmillan and Thatcher, and uh, you're both gentle and harsh in, in in successive paragraphs in some ways. If you were adding a, a, parag- a, a column about David Cameron, how would you assess? his contribution to British history. Is he um, the latter-day equivalent of Lord North, or will he be seen in a more um, uh, a, a more favourable uh, manner in years to come? Well, I think and hope more, more favourable. Um, I think we, you know, the old um, um, Enoch Powell uh, uh, line on, uh, on Joe Chamberlain that all political uh, lives end in failure unless cut off at some point by, by death. Um, but um, I think those six years that we had, the five years of the coalition, um, I think we, some of us now look on, back on that with nostalgia, in which there was a kind of uh, the uh, cooperation between the Tories and the Lib Dems um, was, was kind of fruitful. And, uh, you know, this, the old cliche that England does not love coalitions well, actually, we quite liked this one, and that was largely due to the uh, grace and tact with which Cameron um, led it. You can certainly criticize him for lack of the sort of long-term driving tenacity that um, Margaret Thatcher had, and I think his, inat- his inattention to Europe, which he did more or less more or less openly say, I don't, I, we, I don't want us to be banging on about Europe. So he sort of 
attempted to kick it into the long grass. I think he should have started off absolutely at the beginning by banging on about Europe and, and making the case for British membership and changing the things that needed to be changed. But that's, that's all water under the bridge. But I think um, history will be um, kinder uh, than uh, the newspapers are today. But I must say, go actually, going over all those prime ministers back to Palmerston and Peel, um, in the end, I, I became, having, you know, been a... Um, a harsh uh, um, and sarcastic hack most of my life, I became more charitable to them um, and uh, became more fully aware of, of the extreme difficulties of getting anything right. Ferdinand, thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Thanks to Mark Hennessy and Ferdinand Mount and to sound engineer Robert Sullivan and our producer Declan Conlon. And we'll be back next Tuesday with our regular programme. You're listening to The Irish Times.